evening, humans. Welcome back to the special Halloween episode of the Bedtime Banshee podcast, the show that brings you horrifying but true stories from all over the world. This week, we'll be investigating the strange origins of Halloween, ask an important Halloween question related to bedding, find out why this spooky holiday is probably hazardous to your health, and last but certainly not least, I'll tell you a very disturbing but true Halloween bedtime story. So first things first, a strange and disgusting tale about the origins of Halloween itself. Halloween can be traced back to the ancient Celtic festival of Samhain, the Celts who lived 2,000 years ago across an area that is now Ireland, Scotland, Wales, England and Northern France, celebrated their new year on November the 1st. This day marked the end of summer and the harvest and the beginning of the dark, cold winter, a time of year that was often associated with human death. The Celts believed that on the night before their new year, the boundary between the worlds of the living and the dead became blurred. On the night of October 31st, they celebrated Samhain, when it was believed that the ghosts of the dead returned to Earth. In addition to causing trouble and damaging crops, the Celts thought that the presence of the otherworldly spirits made it easier for the Druids to make predictions about the future. For a people entirely dependent on the volatile natural world, these prophecies were an important source of comfort and direction during the long, dark winter. To commemorate the event, Druids built huge sacred bonfires where the people gathered to burn crops and animals as sacrifices to the Celtic deities. During the celebration, the Celts wore costumes, typically consisting of animal heads and skins, and attempted to tell each other's fortunes. When the celebration was over, they relit their hearth fires from the sacred bonfire to help protect them during the coming winter. In the 7th century AD, the Catholic feast of All Martyrs Day was established in the Western Church. Pope Gregory III later expanded the festival to include all saints as well as all martyrs, and moved the observance from May 13th to November 1st. By the 9th century, the influence of Christianity had spread into Celtic lands, where it gradually blended with and supplanted the older Celtic rites. In 1000 AD, the Church made November 2nd All Souls Day, a day to honour the dead. It's widely believed today that the Church was attempting to replace the Celtic Festival of the Dead with a related Church-sanctioned holiday. All Souls Day was celebrated similarly to Samhain, with big bonfires, parades and dressing up in costumes as saints, angels and devils. The All Saints Day celebration was also called All Hallows or All Hallow Mass, from Middle English All Hallow Messe, meaning All Saints Day, 
and the night before it, the traditional night of Samhain in the Celtic religion, began to be called All Hallows' Eve, and eventually Halloween. In the 19th century, far away from the strict Church of England, the celebration of Halloween found a new home over in the New World as millions of people left Europe seeking a new life in the Americas. As the beliefs and customs of different European ethnic groups as well as the Native Americans meshed, a distinctly American version of Halloween began to emerge. The first celebrations included play parties, public events held to celebrate the harvest, where neighbors would share stories of the dead, tell each other's fortunes, dance and sing. American Halloween festivities also featured the telling of ghost stories and mischief-making of all kinds. In the second half of the 19th century, America was flooded with a wave of new immigrants. These new immigrants, especially the millions of Catholic Irish fleeing the Irish potato famine, helped to popularize the celebration of Halloween nationally. The American Halloween tradition of trick-or-treating probably dates back to the medieval All Souls Day parades in England. During the festivities, the poverty-stricken would beg for food and families would give them pastries called soul cakes in return for their promise to pray for the family's dead relatives. The distribution of soul cakes was encouraged by the church as a way to replace the ancient practice of leaving food and wine for roaming spirits. The practice, which was referred to as going a-souling, was eventually taken up by children who would visit the houses in their neighborhood and be given ale, food and money. Back in the Middle Ages, practically nobody snitched to social services on adults who gave kids ale or mead to drink, since it was generally considered a safer option than letting them drink the water. The tradition of dressing in costume for Halloween has both European and Celtic roots. Hundreds of years ago, winter was an uncertain and frightening time. Food supplies often ran low, and for the many people afraid of the dark, the short days of winter were full of constant dread. On Halloween, when it was believed that goats... Did I just say goats? I mean ghosts. I think that people being afraid of goats is completely valid, so I'm just going to swap ghosts for goats now. When it was believed that goats came back to the earthly world, people thought that they would encounter these goats if they left their homes. To avoid being recognized by the scary goats, people would wear masks when they left their homes after dark so that the goats would mistake them for fellow spirits. On Halloween, to keep the goats away from their houses, people would place bowls of food outside their homes to appease the goats and prevent them from attempting to enter and possibly poo all over the furniture. Now we turn our attention to the Halloween invention of the bedsheet ghoul. There is perhaps no Halloween costume more cliched than the easy-peasy bedsheet ghost, the most primitive of which can be fashioned with nothing but a white linen and scissors for eye holes. But if pop culture has solidified our image of this DIY spectre as the most basic of all trick-or-treating get-ups, then it begs the question, how did we decide that ghosts look like walking sheets? And does anyone actually still wear this on Halloween? 
Ghosts in popular culture haven't always looked like repurposed bedding. In Shakespeare's time, the ghost of Hamlet's father famously wore body armor. In Charles Dickens' classic novel *A Christmas Carol*, the ghost of Ebenezer Scrooge's business partner Jacob Marley wore the clothes he wore during life, complete with a set of chains. Even dramatic depictions of modern-day ghosts are more likely to look like people than laundry. But representations of ghosts in street clothes presented a few logistical challenges for artists. Namely, how do you make sure audiences can tell the difference between living characters and dead ones, and how do you get the ghost costume to stop all that noisy creaking and clanking? Thus, the workaround image of the bedsheet ghost became more popular. More and more ghosts began popping up in burial shrouds. Throughout the 19th and into the 20th centuries, the cloudy and billowing aesthetic we tend to associate with specters dominated popular ghost stories. Early Halloween costumes in America tended to be simple, spooky, and cheap, which naturally led to the rise of bedsheet ghosts. But this gradual cultural shift also created ample opportunities for aspiring hoaxers. Author Owen Davies notes that this trend gave rise to a scourge of bedsheet-wearing ghost impersonators in 18th and 19th century London. Davies concludes that most ghost pranksters did it simply to spook locals for kicks, although an insidious few were allegedly trying to frighten people into fleeing their homes for purposes of burglary. After the debut of Casper the Friendly Ghost in 1939, sheet-based spooky ghost costumes began the slide from scary to silly. Soon afterwards, post-war consumer culture shamed those who passed up mass-produced commercial Halloween costumes for some tatty old sheet. Now let's look at why Halloween may genuinely be hazardous to your health. It's well known that America and increasingly the rest of the world goes batty for Halloween. Dressing up as spooks, monsters, and scantily clad ladies of negotiable virtue, the U.S. alone is forecast to spend nine billion dollars on the holiday in 2018. But the true cost could be a lot higher. It turns out your chance of being killed or injured on Halloween is much higher than any other night of the year. The statistics are shocking. Children are twice as likely to die on Halloween as they trick or treat along the streets. That's according to a 2012 study of more than 4 million fatalities between 1990 and 2010. Okay, I just realised that this music is completely inappropriate for that piece of information, so let's move on to something a little bit funnier. Pumpkin carving takes the lead each year over other Halloween injuries, according to the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission. Out of an estimated 4,500 Halloween-related injuries reported during October and November last year, a whopping 41% of these were related to pumpkin carving. Tripping or falling wins second place for the most common Halloween injury. Getting tangled in the long legs of ill-fitting costumes is a key reason. Costume masks can also be part of the problem. Many gruesome monster heads are ill-fitting, with poorly cut eye holes that limit vision. Ghostly sheets can both obstruct eyesight and become tripping hazards. In addition to tripping, falling off a ladder or some other height ties for second most common injury during Halloween. Most of these occur while putting up or taking down Halloween decorations. 
Last but not least, your outfit demands creature of the underworld eyes to make it suitably eerie, and you've found some cheap costume contacts online that would work perfectly. Great! But before you plop those into your eyes, beware, they could contain chlorine, iron, and other harmful chemicals, according to the American Academy of Ophthalmology. Many of the decorative contacts sold online and in gas stations and beauty parlors are not FDA approved, what a shock. They could easily contain harmful colorants used to create tints and patterns on the surface of the lens. The lens making process can also leave uneven scratchy surfaces that might not be visible but could scratch your cornea. Germs can then enter and infect the eye, creating scarring that can damage vision and cause blindness. Keep an eye out for those Halloween hazards, kids. God, I'm sorry, that was really terrible. I apologize. Now it's time for the final segment of the show, a true Halloween bedtime story that will make sure you never sleep again. Hyun Jong Song was better known to her friends and other Americans who can't pronounce her name as Cindy Song. She was born and raised for most of her childhood in Seoul, South Korea. However, in 1995, she moved to the States to live with her aunt and uncle in Springfield, Virginia. After graduation, she was accepted to Pennsylvania State University. In 2001, Cindy was a senior at Penn State set to graduate in a few months' time. She attended a Halloween party at Players Nightclub and left at 2am. According to friends, they went to a friend's apartment and played games. These same friends dropped Cindy off at her apartment around 4am the morning of November 1st. She was never seen again. When her friends dropped her off, they did not wait to see if she had made it safely into her apartment or not. It wasn't until they hadn't heard from Cindy for three days that they reported her missing on November the 4th. Police went to Cindy's apartment to investigate and found that most of her belongings were there. Her backpack, mobile phone and the fake eyelashes she'd worn as part of her bunny costume were in the apartment, indicating that Cindy had indeed entered the apartment after being dropped off by her friends. None of the other parts of Cindy's costume were in the apartment, suggesting she was still wearing the costume when she disappeared, including her bunny ears. The only things missing were her purse and keys and Cindy herself. Cindy's friends stated that she would not have left her apartment without her phone, but that she may have walked down the street to a nearby 24-hour market either late that night or very early in the morning. Cindy had broken up with her boyfriend about a month before she went missing, and while her family worried she may have committed suicide over this, her friends stated that she was handling the breakup very well and had not seemed too upset over it. As there was no evidence of a break-in at Cindy's apartment, speculation arose over whether or not she disappeared from the apartment or if she had voluntarily left it and something then happened to her en route to the 24-hour market in those early morning hours. Though Cindy and her friends had been drinking at the party that night, there was no evidence that it had anything to do with her disappearance. Authorities soon received a tip from a woman in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, almost 200 miles from Cindy's apartment, shortly after Cindy disappeared. 
the witness claimed that she saw a woman matching Cindy's description inside a vehicle with an unidentified male in the city's Chinatown district. The witness said that the woman called for help, but the man interrupted her and told the witness to leave. Investigators say the woman's story changed multiple times and eventually they had to drop the lead. In addition to this, the police did put together some searches for Cindy in the area of Penn State just after her disappearance. Shortly after Cindy disappeared, her parents flew in from South Korea and cleaned out her apartment, effectively contaminating any further evidence that police may have been able to find throughout their investigation. There was a short period of time in which police departments from Minnesota and Wisconsin were investigating a possible connection between Cindy's case and the disappearances of four other college students who went missing around Halloween in 2002 after attending Halloween parties. However, there was no evidence of any sort of connection between the five cases. The biggest lead in Cindy's case came when an informant by the name of Paul Weekly came forward with information about a prior friend, bank robber Hugo Marcus Zelensky. Zelensky was arrested in 2003 after the remains of five people were found buried in his backyard. Cindy's remains were not among these, but the police were informed that Zelensky and an accomplice, Michael Jason Kirkovsky Jr., had kidnapped Cindy. Kirkovsky's remains were found in Zelensky's backyard, but no concrete evidence links Zelensky to Cindy's disappearance. About a decade later, in January 2014, the burned remains of a dozen more people were found buried on Zelensky's property. Cindy's remains were not identified among these either. The strange thing is, Zelensky actually confessed to the murder of Cindy Song. Zelensky said that he and his partner in crime, Michael Jason Kokoski Jr., had seen Cindy walking in those early morning hours of November 1st, 2001, and they mistook her for a prostitute and kidnapped her. He said that they kept her in a walk-in safe in his home until she died, and then they buried her body somewhere in Luzerne County, Pennsylvania. According to Zelensky, he later murdered Kukovsky, whose body was found burned and buried on his property because he had kept Cindy's bunny ears as a souvenir of their crime. The information that Weekly had given to police about other crimes and murders committed by Zelensky had all turned out to be true, so there was little reason to doubt this information. However, Cindy's remains were not among those buried on Zelensky's property. Investigators have been unable to prove Zelensky's involvement in Cindy's disappearance, but they have not ruled him out as a suspect either. He was acquitted of the murder charges against him, but was convicted of two counts of abuse of a corpse in March 2006. Minority groups on the Penn State College campus criticized both law enforcement and university officials for the lack of progress in Cindy's case. Authorities stated that they have investigated every lead in her disappearance, but there is minimal evidence. So the mystery of what happened to Cindy Song remains unsolved. Did she decide to leave of her own free will? Did she leave her apartment that night to run to the 24-hour market with the intentions of returning? Was she killed in an accident and her body hidden? Could she be alive somewhere still today? Or was she murdered by a ruthless and depraved killer? 
That's all we have time for in this week's special Halloween episode. Thanks for joining us. And remember, you can tweet us at Bedtime Banshee with your true stories of Halloween horrors or disasters if you'd like a shout out on the show. Just remember that even when Halloween's over, that doesn't mean you can relax or sleep. The Bedtime Banshee will always be there, stalking you in your dreams and wherever you listen to this podcast. So keep your wits about you and remember, you can't escape the Bedtime Banshee's call.